This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, this is Christopher Melke, and you're listening to CU Medieval Radio. This is our show, Past Perfect, where we discuss medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Joining us today is Dr. Judith Rassam. Dr. Rassam is an assistant professor and director of the one-year MA program at the Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University in Budapest. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So um, fellow CEU folk and uh, gotten to, I've, I've, I've known you for the past couple of years, but I don't think we've ever really um, talked a lot about specifically some of the work that you've uh, managed to do in your career and uh, what I found really interesting um, looking uh, at your CV and at your publications was that uh, you're trained as an anthropologist and you have a lot of work um, related to cultural anthropology and starting off my question um, would essentially be how do you study cultural anthropology in the past? Well in the United States where I got my degree um, I was specializing in archaeology, but our PhDs are in anthropology, the four fields. So cultural, linguistics, archaeology, and physical anthropology. And physical anthropology meant uh, human evolution and, and that kind of biological questions. Uh, and typically, American anthropologists deal with living societies and often with uh, so-called primitive or non-Western societies or non-industrial societies, although this, these kinds of designations are very blurry now and, and are not particularly relevant for many people's work. Uh, and also archaeologists take cultural anthropological approach to past civilizations and societies like the Maya, the Inca, the Anasazi, and so on. And there is historical archaeology in the United States. There, I think many people are familiar with the Colonial Williamsburg uh, Park uh, Center, and they do very skillful and intensive archaeology there to improve their uh, museum displays and the plants that they grow, and they, it's quite comprehensive. Uh, and the National Park Service also has archaeologists that do historic archaeology on their holdings. I know, for instance, that some years ago there was excavations, not by the Park Service, but uh, excavations nonetheless, on a house in Philadelphia where Kosciuszko stayed during the uh, American Revolution, or just after it. So there's, there's interest in that in the, in the United States, but of course things are a lot younger there than they are in Europe. So when I tell people that things in the United States are protected by law if they're older than 50 years, they tend to burst out laughing. But for us, that's old. And Americans come to Europe and they go to the cathedrals and the, the town squares and we go, wow, 1600, wow. And then the Europeans aren't impressed unless it's 1000 or 1200 that they're dealing with. Uh, but I do think that anthropology can be very informative about the past. History is written by 
people who had power to tell a story and they tell their own story. They tell their political goals. They tell their religious goals. And archeology span reveals everyday life. It can be the everyday life of a palace. It can be the everyday life in a farm village. And that is a great counterweight to only relying on documents because many things simply are not documented. And it makes the past more alive in a kind of popular way, but also in a, in a theoretical way. So we have to ask what were ordinary people doing? Um, I think there's a song from the old musical Camelot. I wonder what the peasants are doing tonight. <laughs> uh, and that's a good question. We do find things that we didn't expect. With what I've read on um, on, on archaeology of everyday life, you can you can you can find the most interesting things in the oddest of places. There's been quite a lot of work done on barrel latrines, for instance. Oh yes. I mean, looking at medieval toilets, essentially, where from that you can tell, like you know, uh, well, in this neighborhood they you know um, they didn't eat a lot of pork, um, whereas yes. in this other neighborhood uh, there were a lot of intestinal parasites. Right. Right, yes, privies in, in historical archaeology in the United States are just little gold mines. Because typically, once something goes in there, you don't get it back. And it just stays there until the archaeologist comes along. Well, I mean, good time capsule then. Yes, yes. Good place to get rid of the, all the medicine bottles that were mostly alcohol. <laughs> oh, we, we, I, I know that in, um, in, in, in places like, like prisons... Uh-huh. Uh, there, there was there was a, a, a volume or no there was an article in a book called uh, the archaeologies of sexuality talking about what they found in a women's prison out in oh. Australia and uh, um, they were looking at you know what the wardens uh, were saying about you know oh these depraved women are you know drinking and smoking and oh all these sorts of things and then if you look at the the garbage out there uh, it's things you know like you, you find liquor bottles you find um, sometimes clay pipes. Oh. Uh, I mean, again, not exactly medieval stuff, but I mean, as an analogy. But it's the principles. The principles of use and discard are the same. Absolutely. I mean, they're very powerful if you can apply them or make them apply to what you're doing. I mean, here in Hungary, for instance, uh, there um, was a well near the old Buddha castle right. where about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, amidst a bunch of, you know, broken shoes and... Um, some, some clay fragments, they found a throne carpet. Yes, yes, I've seen it and it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's, it's silk from the 14th century. And it's pieced together. It's not just one big piece of silk, it's sewn together. It's like an engineering project. Oh yes. I mean, there's, uh, there, there's fortunately been, uh, a bit, been, a bit, been a bit of work done uh, on it, but I think it's, it's really one of those things that whenever I have someone uh, come and visit, uh, I always try and make sure that they see this just because... Yeah, it's, it's a miracle of survival. Absolutely. It also says something about communication because clearly what happened was it, it went out, of, whatever it was representing went out of favor and they said, we've got to get rid of this. Mm -hmm. Like people in former uh, communist countries who had memorabilia from the monarchies of various places having to, feeling that they had to destroy them or bury them or something. Or, and, and, and then in the case of Budapest, I mean, there's that memento park where, uh, you know, they, they shipped all of the old communist oh, statues. It's, it's a very nice place. You really get a sense of 
the power of that kind of, of art. I mean, you, you spend that much, and if you spend enough time there, you want to start shaking your fist and going avante. Uh, and it's, it's quite tastefully done, mm -hmm. actually. Historical sources, written sources, you know, obviously are written with a purpose in mm -hmm. mind. So it's the sort of thing that, you know, you definitely have to have a very discerning eye when you look at that. And archaeological sources, sure, something was to, was deposited, but I mean, why was it thrown away? Why was it um, put in a particular place? Just a, a random, you know, sort of a more personal question. How do you get these uh, these two sources to work together? Because when someone studies both history and archaeology, it's sort of like, oh, well, they're essentially the same, aren't they? And the reality of it, of it is they're very different. Well, they're classed as different disciplines. So even though potentially there's overlap, and there's no reason not to have overlap, the practitioners tend to feel different from each other. I mean, you have to use all of the potential sources that apply. Now, I don't know so much about medieval uh, historical archaeology, but I know in the United States, you end up using uh, popular magazines, uh, cookbooks that tell you how to can things, because in a historical site, archaeological site, you might find canning jars, um, various kinds of cosmetics, medicines, and, and so on. Uh, and then you, you go back and forth between magazines, between city directories, which were published annually, typically, before telephone books. Mm -hmm. And you see the advertisements in there, and then you go, oh, I recognize this. This guy has, we have a bottle that by this guy. There was a, a, a pharmacist in Los Angeles in the late 19th century, whose name was Trout. And all he had special glass bottles made for his medicines that had a little trout on it, a little fish. And so when you find one of those, you know, and then you can look. We found them and we looked him up. That's how we. That's how we established one of the parameters of when he was in business and how this could have gotten to the other place and that sort of thing. And I think the same thing can happen in, in for medieval for medieval sites if you find pottery that's a trade where there was a, a trade in pottery between. Vienna and through Hungary and into Transylvania of graphite tempered wares. Now graphite's what they make pencil leads out of and it's a shiny gray kind of rock. And if you put it in your pottery, it makes the pottery more heat resistant. So you can use it for, they used to make crucibles for melting metal, mm -hmm. little crucibles, and that would keep them from blowing up or breaking when they put the hot metal into it. And so we know archaeologically the distribution of these things. I don't know how much actual literature there is on it, but there's a, a quite a bit of experimental work that's been done. And then you can look at it and you can learn to identify, well, this is this black ware with graphite in it as opposed to some kind of ware that has a white body that's for something else. Really, really fascinating, though. I mean, both in terms of uh, comparative uh, methods and seeing seeing what people in other disciplines are are able to do with uh, their sources. And uh, for for Hungary, it can it can be difficult. A lot of things like town books or uh, mm. useful information like that um, tend not to survive. But at the same time, I mean, when information does survive, how do you use it? Is a very important question. And when it doesn't survive, how do you get around that? Is also sort of an interesting issue yes. in and of itself. Yes, with the 
how you use it, how you connect the sources and the archaeology, if, if there are sources, I think it has to be very careful. I, it's not a, a direct two points are in a line. Sure. You have to have some sort of intervening uh, model or theory or understanding of what the writing represents and what, how it's going to look in the ground. And I have not done enough medieval archaeology to really be an expert on this, uh, but I, I know it, it can be done. And you work back and forth. You have what you find, and then you look at the whatever kind of literature you can find, and then you look, you see what you can find, and then you look back again to see if it, if it explains what you've got or if it suggests an explanation. And of course, Hungary has been, the, the medieval record has been so damaged by various invasions and up and back of armies that there's not so much left. It's not like France or England. Uh, and so sometimes you can use comparative examples from there, but not, not slavishly because they were different places yeah. and they had different histories of their own. So you can't say something, well, then France, they did this, so therefore they must have done the same thing in Hungary. Oh, no, no. That's really dangerous. It, it's very dangerous. The needs of, of places were different in, in very practical yes, yes. Uh, ways. I mean, ways yes. you, you don't necessarily uh, think about, and um, that might not always be apparent uh, upon first glance. And the temptation that I've seen in some of the, the you know 19th century literature has been to find something and immediately say, this must have been built by the, the queen or the king um, because of X, Y, and Z reasons. And it's a big house, and there's lots of nice things there, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's royal property. That's right. That's right. Now, that's something you can check in the records if they, if they still exist. And there's lots of legal documents, actually, that exist, perambulations and, and legal noble families' uh, archives and holdings. And then that helps identify. I mean, that's something you can't get from archaeology is who owned it. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, you never, you never find a little plaque that says this belonged to the, the count of some place. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. That's just not what they did. Even graffiti isn't very helpful, like for the Roman age, whereas, you know, like Maximus was here. Yeah, it's, it's... like Kilroy was here. Right. <laughs> well, we actually, CEU has a master's thesis about graffiti in a monastery in Bulgaria. And it's it tends to be pictures of boots. And the, the archeologist who wrote it figured out that what it meant was take your shoes off when you come inside. Oh, how funny. Yeah. Med medieval graffiti or? I guess I think they were medieval. The, the sort of graffiti that I've heard about. And I, I can't remember what time period, uh, so do forgive me on this, but they were looking at um, prisons Mm -hmm. And I think like the early medieval period, prisons in England, and uh, one of the, you know, there's this one symbol that they keep finding that uh, has been interpreted in two ways. One is that it's either meant to be a lock and a key. Mm -hmm. The other is that it's a vagina. Oh. Certain things you find and there could be a myriad of explanations. Oh, yes. And, uh, oh, yes. Well, then you need more data, you need more context. <laughs> quite, quite, quite. Uh -huh. On that note, we'll take a very short break, but we'll be back in a moment. Okay. Welcome back. This is Christopher Nalke, and joining us is Dr. Judith Rassen uh, from CEU. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. 
During the little break, uh, we started talking a little bit about um, textiles and mm -hmm. the me medieval and early modern fabric and this mm -hmm. sort of thing. And uh, uh, would you mind, just as a sort of uh, starting point for um, this particular uh, part of the interview, telling us a little bit about some of the work that you've done on textiles? I haven't done any historic textiles. It's a topic I'm interested in. Okay. I'm interested in modern textiles. I like to make quilts. I like to sew and embroider and those sort of activities, but they're, they're more on the hobby level. I have been teaching in the past. I, uh, I have taught uh, material culture, like a history of material culture. So we looked at basketry, uh, which is creating sort of fabrics out of rather stiff wooden twiggy things and then related to that it, it moves into textiles which are more flexible and and drapeable so there's many different many different ways to get fabrics and and in the distant past starting in the neolithic which of early uh, farmers right up into the historic present of the 19th century in scandinavia there's a kind of loom called the warp-weighted loom, where the warp, the long threads in the piece of fabric, are, are tied to a bar on one end, and on the other end they're tied to weights to keep the warp taut and keep the tension, and then the weft, or the weaving thread, is woven through that, through the warp. That's a, a very old form of textile, and it survived long enough that they have photographs of women actually working these these looms in in Scandinavia, Norway, somewhere. Um, so by the time history had moved on to the Middle Ages, they had the kind of looms that we associate now with that are horizontal, where the warp threads are wrapped around rollers, and that's how they keep the tension. And then the the weaver sits at one end of this strip of warp and then passes the weft back and forth through the threads to make to make fabric and that was probably more efficient in some ways and it was more subject to manipulation so in the middle ages they figured out ways to hold out certain groups of threads and weave around them and then let them loose and then you get a pattern in it uh, so they had very elaborate looms in the late medieval period and they had a frame on the top and there was a little boy who sat up there called the draw boy and the weaver would weave and then I don't know what the command was or whether the kid knew but he would pull the string to raise up the the right threads to make the pattern and you know I look at I look at illustrations of those and those those little boys were maybe six or seven feet off the ground and I'm thinking on a hot summer's day and they're supposed to be weaving and the, the loom is making a nice no, noise and I wonder how many of them fell asleep and fell out of there of course there's no record of right. that and they, we've never dug up a head dump head bump in a floor but middle ages textile production became quite industrial and they had fulling mills, these special mills that were water run, and they, but they weren't for grinding grain, they were for squishing the fabric. So they would weave some fabric, typically out of wool, and then they would put it in, this, in the water and it, they, would kind of, they would pound it mechanically with the fulling mill. And then when they took it out, it would, be, would have a felted surface. It wouldn't, you couldn't see the weave anymore, and it made it stiffer, it made it, probably made it more waterproof, and it made it more durable, certainly, because it'd be, it would wear better. Well, yeah, felt, it seems, was used um, for hats a lot, especially, um, especially, I, I can think of in, like, the 16th century, I don't, I honestly can't say before that. 
Well, certainly in, in Central Asia, they were using it to make yurts and things like that. So, and they, they may have known it. They may have known how to do it. I just don't know if there's anything that survives. I saw a felt maker making hats in uh, Kosovo many years ago, and he had the fibers, and he had like a, was like a violin bow standing on its end. And he would somehow, he was hitting the fibers against this bow and packing them down to make them, because you don't weave it, it's, it's just a natural meshing and sticking together of fibers. And the little, the texture of the individual strands of wool, they stick together and you can compact them and make felt. It's really interesting and it's the sort of thing that, I mean, not a lot of medieval fabric uh, survives. So it's, it's very difficult, I think, in, in the pre-modern era to really uh, understand the importance of fabric to everyday life. There was a study done on the English aristocracy in the late Middle Ages that said about 10% of like the average aristocrat's income was spent on fabric and clothing. Yes. Yes. Well, it's a very important part of representation if you're, well, for anybody, but if you're a royal or a noble person, certainly you have to dress the part. In medieval Eastern Europe, we know that the Slovakian town that's today Bartva, and uh, it was Hungarian Bartva and Slovakian Bardejov was a huge linen center. Mm-hmm. And it drew in woven linen from the surrounding area, and they had a, a bleaching area where they could bleach the linen, and then they had a marketing procedure where it could be sold, and it was a huge, huge amount of, uh, of in, in, it was an industrial type production. Uh, and if you look at uh, customs registers, as some people have done in Transylvania, there's lots and lots of different kinds of fabric on, that was being traded in and out of these various places. I don't know if it was things like silk, which really was at a premium, but good quality linen, wool, or a mixture of linen and wool, or a mixture of hemp with some of these things, because until the modern period, uh, people in areas like Transylvania were growing, using hemp to make fabric rather than, rather than flax. It was kind of a low-cost version. I don't know exactly why they did it other than that. I have to talk about a very curious uh, sort of a story that I heard. There was a, a, a volume published about letters of um, Elizabeth Bathory, the, uh-huh. the blood countess, as she's called, oh. who um, all these rumors about her killing these girls and bathing in their blood. I mean, it's very Sounds hard. like an act of imagination. It's really hard to study her properly because there's so much of, of the sort of myth- mythology around her about mm-hmm. that. But uh, she, you know, had estates in uh, Transylvania and in what's nowadays Slovakia, mm-hmm. mostly. And this would have been around like the year, like the 1590s, mm-hmm. um, 1600. And uh, there was actually a letter, a, a series of letters she exchanged with one of her castellans um, where she tried growing, the word is cannabis. And it's Mm -hmm. not specified um, whether it's cannabis or whether it's hemp, Mm -hmm. but uh, she tried growing it and, you know, obviously it grew, but there were a bunch of problems and the letters that she has is essentially how selling this isn't profitable, so do something about it, rip the whole thing up. Interesting. Well, there's, there's certainly ethnographic information from Transylvania and possibly from Slovakia still about hemp manufacturing. In fact, I know someone who, as a child, took part in hemp processing in Transylvania. So there's living memory. It's not just, it's not just ethnography, but there are people that could be, could be interviewed. 
Well, and that's that's the sort of interesting thing, getting back to what you mentioned mm-hmm. um, earlier. It's sort of experimental archaeology, but in other ways it's not, because these are these are processes that even today still survive, if you know where to right. look. Yes, and it would be really useful to have a guide to medieval, medieval cloth mm-hmm. that would explain the different kinds of t- fibers that were used, how the spinning was done, whether it was a drop spindle by hand or whether it was a spinning wheel, or whether it was some other method, whether what kind of wool, there's different different sheep have different kinds of wool and it spins differently. Some merino make very fine wool and other sheep are not, it doesn't make as fine, you can't get as fine a thread, for instance, which is merinos, I think a, a, a modern or an early modern breed, but there might be information. And museums do have collections of fragments, but I don't know if anyone's ever approached them from this perspective of doing some sort of a guide. Now, the place that I would love to see do it is Victoria and Albert Museum. Oh, yes. Oh, they, have, they have such a good fabric collection. Well, and they have an embroidery school. You can go to embroidery school there, which I think is wonderful. But you have to be in residence, so that means you have to be at parts of it. So you have to actually be living in England, which is not so practical. And living in London is not so cheap either. Yeah, well, I don't know how long it lasts. But right, right. Well, one of the things that I've been interested in here is when we go on field trips, we go to museums and we go to treasuries in cathedrals and so on, is looking at the church vestments. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to a medievalist historian and I said something, I asked about it and they said, well, most of those were done by men because it was guilds that did the the vestments. And they, uh, the embroidery, the gold embroidery and the silk embroidery and so on, that was a a man's job. And what's been interesting to me over the years is going to even small museums, this like a, like a house museum run by the Franciscans somewhere in Croatia, and they have on display all sorts of stuff. But they had, I found a couple of old pieces of vestment where they were salvaged. They took the original vestment and they cut around the embroidered parts. They cut off the backing and they reapplied it to something. You see this quite commonly. But then, They used it until it completely fell apart, and now all you can see is the linen or whatever the backing was. There's no embroidery left, and there's no there's no color or anything, but you can see the structure of it. And even in big collections like the one at Estergom, some of the some of the vestments you can see have been not recycled but refurbished, Mm -hmm. where they took the really beautiful embroidery and put it on a new backing because it was getting getting shabby or they, they couldn't just put it in the washing machine. Right. They, they had to have some way to take care of it. And that also is a very fascinating topic. There are some books on it, and I, I think there are a couple of dissertations in the States on, on uh, liturgical vestments, but it's not something you find at every corner shop, a book like that. There are, there are objects of everyday use. So yes, for the church. For the, for the church. So, I mean, in, in some very, very exceptional cases, like the Hungarian coronation mantle. Right. That doesn't... It was donated to be um, a, a church vestment, but it survived because it was donated by the first king of Hungary and, mm-hmm. and his wife as well. It's only through that that we know uh, what it looks like, and the only reason why it has survived. In some rare instances, they do survive, but uh, this is a question out of ignorance. Can you look at a piece of fabric from the Middle Ages and tell what sort of loom it was woven upon in most cases? I would say probably not. Mm -hmm. If it has a pattern in it, like damask or one of those fabrics, 
you might be able to say. But you can describe the kind of weave, so a tabby weave, which is just over and under, over and under. Mm-hmm. You can have a twill weave, which is over two, under two, and then it makes a stronger weave, like jean, material that jeans are made out of denim is a twill weave. Okay. And this is a more durable, uh, more durable fabric, and it's been around for since medieval times. So you can tell things like that, but I don't know if you can actually say what kind of a loom. I, I think see. the assumption is that by the Middle Ages, virtually everything was be in the main areas of Central Europe and, and Western. It was being done on these horizontal looms. And I think we see kind of the importance of textile technology and that that was one of the first industries to be mechanized mm-hmm. in the Industrial Revolution was the spinning and weaving. Mm-hmm. So they, they had a pretty good grasp on the technology of it. And they, and it's, it continues to be a, a useful thing. We will have to take a short uh, break due to the time, but uh, we'll be back momentarily. Please enjoy the music. Hello and welcome back. And this is Chris Mulkey, your host of Past Perfect, here with uh, Dr. Judith Rassen uh, from CEU. Hello again. Thank you so much for being here. We haven't gotten so much on this in the interview so far, but you've done a lot of work on the Balkans. Mm-hmm. When we were sort of discussing ideas of what to talk on this interview, you mentioned uh, the idea of talking about, now forgive my pronunciation, the stapesy. Would you mind telling us just what these are? Well, these are in some ways quite understandable, in other ways quite mysterious stone carvings that are found in um, Bosnia, parts of Croatia, parts of Montenegro, parts of Serbia, so that area of former Yugoslavia. And what's uh, clear about them to us is that there's some sort of memorial marker to a person who's passed away. They're made out of rough limestone and they're carved and I probably not carved by just anybody. It probably had to be somebody who knew how to handle the stone. But the stone is very coarse, so they couldn't, for instance, polish it the way you can marble. And they made uh, decorations in, in bas-relief, sort of outlines of things. Uh, that, and you can tell what they are, more or less. And these things, this, these, uh, one of them is called a stechak. And because of the way plurals are formed in Croatian or Serbian or Bosnian, it, they become stechci, uh, which is hard for us. They are as small as, say, an, a block the size of an armchair and as big as, almost as big as a, a love seat, a two-seater couch. And some of, they have different shapes. Some of them are, they look like little dog houses with a, with a, with a gabled roof. But of course, there's, they're solid rock. There's, they're not hollow inside. Some of them look like sarcophagi or tombstones, but again, they're not hollow, they're solid. Some are in the shape of pillars, some are in the shape of, occasionally there's one in the shape of a cross. So they have a a range of shapes and they have a recognizable decoration in that we can recognize hunting scenes where some guy with a bow and arrow is shooting at an animal or what seem to be dance scenes where people, uh, men and women are in a row with their hands raised shoulder high and it looks like they're dancing like a line dance. There's grapevines and great bunches of grapes. There's there's more abstract things like spirals. There's the medieval symbol of the fleur-de-lis which is also called the lily of France by some people. 
which uh, occurs in some places. So there's a wide range of decoration. There's one or two that have some letters on them, but the inscription, they don't mostly have inscriptions. So the question is, where did these come from? Why are they there? Who made them? This is a big mystery. They are scattered through the countryside. Sometimes they're alone in a field. Sometimes they're in groups. Sometimes they appear to be in a kind of an organized place like a cemetery would look. Sometimes archaeologists have found that people are actually buried underneath. So if they tip one over and excavate it, they will find a, a buried person. But not all of them are like that. Many of them seem to be just in memory of someone. So we can describe them. We can plot their locations. They appear to be associated with Christianity. And after that, it gets hard to tell. Now, some people associate, they, they seem to be dated from the 14th to the 16th century, somewhere in there. It's hard to tell whether there was a development or whether it was kind of a fluorescence where all of a sudden everybody was putting these up and then they stopped. So we don't know why people started. We don't know why people stopped doing this. One explanation has been that they're associated with uh, a society who were shepherds and they, they were transhuman. So they were taking their sheep and goats maybe up into the high mountains in the summer so they could graze and then bringing them down into the lowlands in the winter to winter over. And whether they uh, were nomads where they didn't go back to a village every year but they went to a different place or whether they had a summer village in the mountains and a winter village in the lowlands, that's another kind of pattern. And that kind of lifestyle persists today, but the people who do it don't make these things. And so some people think they were, that this group was called the Vlachs. They were a group of people who may have spoken a Romance language like Romanian. There are still people who speak Vlach in Greece and in Macedonia, and it is similar to Romanian, so they may also be, be groups of them in Romania, but they wouldn't be so noticeable by language because it's quite similar. So there has been, over the years, going back into the 1950s, people have made studies of the stage C. There was a famous guy named Beslagic who went and made drawings and I guess some photographs, mostly drawings and catalogs of where these are. Uh, and there have been people who studied them from the art history perspective. Some people have studied them from the cultural perspective, saying, okay, these are hunting scenes, these are dancing scenes. There's been at least one study of the fleur-de-lis as it applies. Where would they get this idea? Maybe it was from uh, seals. That was one of the ideas, that they would get it from a seal and just change the, the, uh, the scale of it. There's been descriptive studies, I would say. I don't think anyone has done a true locational study to look at where these are located in the landscape, whether they're associated with particular features, which would take would be a statistical problem and a statistical project. My hope is that someone will go with GPS and mark each one, check the old records and mark each one, and make a really uh, thorough study of the location and the explanatory potential of these. I don't know how we're ever going to find out who really did them, but we could find out a lot more about where they are and maybe predict why they would be there. Now, if you're traveling in Bosnia, there's a place called Radinja, 
where there's a whole group of these, and I believe that they, it was naturally like that. It wasn't moved there by any modern person. And it's right by the side of the road. You can stop, and there's a parking lot. You can get off, and you can walk around and see see different ones. And it's it's quite impressive when you see a whole group of them together. It's not spooky, but it does give you a feeling of the past and how people must have had to move them somehow on maybe with oxen or even with a whole bunch of donkeys and on a sledge maybe dragging them over the landscape. We don't know, no one has ever experimented with moving a rock that size in this landscape in this, of this type of rock. As far as I know, no one knows where the rock was quarried. This is not like a fancy marble. This is a rough limestone and it's, the, the soil is very thin in these areas so it's, it's virtually on the surface in many places. It would be really, it would take some looking to be able to recognize where one of these things was carved out. But there may be something geologists can refine the origins a little bit by looking at it. I, I don't know if any geologists have, have made a study like that. I've seen a little bit of them from photographs, mm -hmm. and there, there seem to be a lot of them. There are a lot, well. yes. Uh, do you have any idea how many of them survived to present day? A couple no, hundreds. hundreds. Okay. I would say hundreds, probably. Because there's Redimia, there's another place up in Herzegovina called Stolots. There's a group up there. And there's some at least one cemetery in Montenegro. And then there's scattered, there's also scattered ones that are singles or that are in in smaller groups, say four or five together. Some of them have been collected and put into the museum garden in Sarajevo, things that were threatened by development and so on. I and see. there's some very, very nice ones there. Uh, the museum isn't open as far as I know at the present time, but if you go there and it is open, you can go in and see them there. Uh, and they had the call sign image for the old uh, radio television Sarajevo channel was an image of from the side of one of these stasia. Um, it's a panel with trees and animals and so on on it. It was quite, it was one of the more elaborate ones. When you see something like this and what it could possibly signify and what it could possibly be, uh, you mentioned the word memory. What in particular could these be commemorating? I think the assumption is they're commemorating individuals. Okay. Given the time, I would assume that these were men. Maybe yes, maybe no. And somehow these are, they represent something about preserving the existence of the person. So it's not like a tombstone where you have an inscription with the name and the dates and where the person was born. So these are much more abstract. But to people who understood them, they would have known what they stood for, that it was an important person. They would have known maybe stories about them. They would have remembered, oh yeah, that was my great-grandfather or some other relative. Whether they were connected to lineages or clans of related families, I don't know, and I don't know if anyone has ever tried to establish that. I don't think there's patterns in the sense that there's crosses in one area and grapes in another area, the, the, the motifs seem to be quite well spread around and interlayered, intertwined. Uh -huh. I don't think that's an avenue that offers much in the way of interpretation. But certainly, in the same sense that we put, modern people put tombstone markers. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure this is the kind of thing. Or maybe it's the kind of thing they do in England where they put a park bench in memory of somebody. It's m as much the leaving something there as what you leave. And in this case, it was just this 
convention. This, this was a convention for a while, and it was. I think that it was quite a bit of work to do one of these. I would imagine. And to move it to the right place, and then you must imagine that they had a, some sort of a ceremony, the way we have a, a memorial for someone who passes away, and even if they're not buried under it, they would have have to have some social side to the commemoration. But I think these are memories of persons and possibly persons as representing a kinship group like a lineage, maybe. Other kinds of memory symbols would be the way we use now, well, the way we now use statues. Mm -hmm. So throughout Budapest, in fact, there's statues commemorating various famous people. There's the all the socialist statues that, that commemorated communism, which has now been moved out of town that we mentioned before. And those are, are more uh, social constructs. I mean, those, those suit the audience that want to see them. Okay. So in modern Budapest, a trend is to have life-size statues. So it's not a plinth with a giant horse with a giant king on top. It's uh, a life-size 19th century policeman with his helmet on that and people feel very comfortable with these not only tourists but also just passers-by yeah. recognize these these figures they have them in other other cities as well in, in Seattle they have one that's where people people waiting for the bus and it's a statue and they people come at Christmas time and put hats and scarves on them and so on and sort of adopt them so it's a different approach to to memory it's a different scale of making memories on this this human the size of an actual human rather than these gigantic representational ones of the of important figures there's been a lot of work done on cemeteries a marker in a cemetery could be something simple as a tree yes you know you know go to the ash tree and it will be the third little wooden stick cross right over west over from that so I think considering that so much effort is being put into these particular right. monuments is, is very, very important. I mean, certainly everyone couldn't have a stitchak. No, indeed. And that's why I think that they are representational, either the importance of the person or the importance of the kin group. And in some societies, they have a role that we might call a chief, like an Indian chief. But they're not, it's not exactly a chief, it's called a big man. That's the technical okay. term for it. And these are men who make themselves important they're, they, they, because they're good leaders, because they're good at predicting what to do in case of an emergency or making a decision, because they can collect wealth in terms of whatever the society is. And they are, they're self-made men, basically. They maintain their position by doing things the society likes. So in the Northwest Coast Indians in uh, the area of southern British Columbia, northern Washington state, they had things called potlatches. They would call them chiefs, but the leaders would accumulate great stocks of wealth, and then they would give them have a big party and give everything away. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that's a typical thing that one of these big men would do. And I, could, I have no problem thinking that the Stetschsi represent men like that, who, mm -hmm. were, who were the entrepreneurs of their age, the doers. We'll have to take a short break, but we'll be back uh, in a moment with the conclusion of the show. Okay. Hello there, uh, this is Chris Milkey, and we've had the very good pleasure of interviewing Judith Rassen from CEU here. 
One of the things that I wanted to ask you before we sign off, just a small question though, tell us a little bit about some of the current projects that you're working on or planning on working on. Well, I, I'm interested in using archaeological methods and applying them to historical data. Maybe not archaeological data yet, but historical. So in the Ottoman Empire, they were very organized and they collected taxes on lots of things and they kept records of everything. And these uh, tax records are available for many places that are now not part of Turkey. So a large, large number of countries in the Balkans, for instance. And these tax records are called, in English, they're called defteri. I can't pronounce it in Turkish. Fortunately for me, the Macedonians have carefully translated all of them that apply to Macedonia into Macedonian. So I can now use the translations because I haven't learned Ottoman, which means learning not only the language but the script, which I haven't invested in yet. And I have been looking at settlement pattern in the different, the equivalent of Ottoman counties to see what the settlement density was, what kind of products people were producing, what the status of different religions was. Were, they, were most of the Muslims in the cities? Were there Muslims in the villages? It's not possible to tell who were converts and who, who weren't. That, that's not part of what a tax record uh, tells you. But I, I've done some experimental measurements of the size of the counties and the average number of, of settlements. And some of them, one expects to have a very dense population and there's not. And other ones, it's the other way around. So one of the smallest counties east of Skopje, the capital of Macedonia, has a very, in the middle, middle age, late Middle Ages and early modern period, has a very high number of, of settlements. And when I looked a little bit into the historical literature, I found that it was a trade center. And there were mines nearby, which for metal ores. And it also had a Jewish population, which was uh, rather unusual, except in any of the biggest cities like Skopje and, and what's now Bitola was then Monastir. So I would like to pursue some of these questions more in historical literature, look, look more about the history of these places, and look potentially at the archaeology, because some of them, the, the castles and some of the buildings, the, the monumental buildings are still there. And it would be nice to, to geo-reference some of these places and start working with the Macedonians to build up a database that, that everyone can use for this kind of historical study because Ottoman studies have not been popular in the Balkans uh, in some areas because people felt that it was the mark of a conqueror or that they were held back from their nationalist purposes. And whether or not that was true, the fact was that scholarship was not uh, diverted towards this topic. But now things are changing and there's a lot of work being done and I feel like I want to sort of join the party we look forward to, to seeing what uh, comes up. Uh, thank you so much for, for being Oh, on. thank you for asking me. It's been a lot of good fun. And for the listeners back home, as always, be sure to tune in up to us on the web at www.medievalradio.org. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, um, please, by all means, send us an email to medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook as well. From all of us here, we thank you very much for listening.